Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Mohammed, for that kind introduction. Um, as Mohammed says, I'm not really a stranger to NYU Abu Dhabi. I've been here involved in NYU Abu Dhabi for um, uh, over seven years now, I think. Um, and uh, I was privileged to be one of those who founded the Center for Genomics and Systems Biology here, which you'll hear a little bit about later on today. But today we're going to talk about something that hopefully uh, will be of interest to you and something that is of interest to the region, which are date palms uh, and their evolution. And really it'll focus on some of the work that we've been doing and what we've learned about the evolution of date palms. But I'd like to start off with the Louvre, which just opened last week. I, it was, I, I timed my visit here this, this semester perfectly to coincide with the opening of the Louvre. Uh, and how many of you have been to the Louvre Abu Dhabi already? So several of you have already been. And for those of you who have not, I really um, cannot stress how, how wonderful that museum is to go back to. And I've been there twice already this week. So um, it's really a fantastic museum. But when I entered the Louvre in Abu Dhabi, the first few galleries talked about the origins of civilization, the first villages, and the first great civilizations. And as I entered it, and when I realized what the first galleries were, I said, I bet you there's going to be something here that has a date palm on it. Because really, you cannot talk about the early civilizations, especially in this part of the world, without date palms. And of course, in the second gallery, I saw it, a vase with date palm motifs. And that's actually the title of the piece from Uruk, one of the first cities of the world in ancient Samaria. This is 4,300 years ago. This is actually towards the decline of Uruk already. Um, but it just shows, and this is just one of many examples of the importance of date palms in thinking about the history of man uh, itself. And we'll go back to that um, later on. So I got interest. Um, my, most of my research actually uh, deals with um, rice. It's the primary work. My lab in New York works primarily in rice. And when I came here to Abu Dhabi to work at NYU Abu Dhabi in the Center for Genomic Systems Biology, I was trying to think of a, a good project. And I decided to look at date palms because I actually didn't know anything about date palms. I really had no idea what, what date palms were and, and their biology. So I thought this would be an interesting challenge. But I don't have to convince you why it's important in this region. Here in the Arabian Peninsula, it is really the only indigenous crop of the Arabian Peninsula. And it is a species that thrives in arid environments that we see around us. Um, so it is a species that has adapted very well to what's called oasis agriculture. And I wanted to learn more about how it's adapted to that. And there's also, for those of us who study um, the genetics and evolution of crops, something of interest to us as well. As, climates are as the climate is changing around the world, we are going to be more dependent on crops that can grow in stressful environments. And maybe we can learn something from the date palm as to how to adapt to these types of environments. 
But it's also, as I said here, not only economically important, but it's also, as we see in that cup from Uruk, um, culturally important. And there are very few crops around the world that have captured the imagination of humans throughout history, that they're integrated into the culture um, in, in so intimate a way. Um, I can think of corn as probably the only other crop species that really has captured the imagination. But date palms clearly are. In various of the old civilizations in this area, this is a detail from a Quran uh, from the Umayyad period early on uh, in, in, the, um, uh, in, in the founding of Islam. And this is, this is a wonderful calligraphy of, or integration of the date palm into the calligraphy. Um, so what I'm going to talk to you, before I, I tell you a little bit about um, uh, date palms, I, I want to give you a little bit of background, because some of you might not might not have had biology past your high school days. But it's, it's not going to be um, too in-depth. But it, it all um, centers on uh, thinking into a, a discovery several decades ago now, um, almost pl uh, 50 plus years, which was the discovery of the structure of DNA in 1953, which, of course, um, was a seminal moment in human history because Crick and Watson, shown here, published a paper, which I show you, pretty much that's the entire paper. There's a few more paragraphs after that, which described the structure of this elegant molecule, this double helix, that was the repository of the genes of organisms. This molecule is the one that carries the information. It encodes the information that is part of what makes us who we are and organisms what they are. And so if you look at this double helix DNA, it contains the letters, the, the, the subsequent letters, that encode the information that instructs the cells in the body to form the proteins that make us up and cause us to be, in many ways, alive. And this, this, this double helical molecule is packaged into these structures called chromosomes. And the entire set of chromosomes, all of the DNA in the organism, really makes up the, what we call the genome of the organism. This is the entire blueprint or instruction set for how to make an individual organism. Uh, and this just shows you, for example, the human chromosomes, color-coded here. Um, and here in this picture, this is all the in packed in these molecules are all the information that is encoded in our cells that make us who we are as individuals. Um, and there has been you know, a long history of trying to understand the letters that make up these molecules to try to understand how these structures are encoded and what happens if you change parts of the encoded message. So over the last few decades now, there has been a concerted effort to study the information encoded uh, in our genome. And the most important one was the sequencing of the human genome. This was a 10-year project. It cost $3 billion as an international project to sequence the genome of humans so that we could understand the code that makes us as humans who we are as a species. But while the sequencing of the human genome was a landmark achievement, that was not the only genome that was sequenced. 
Um, over the last few years, starting in 1977, scientists have been sequencing genomes of various organisms, starting with viruses, going into bacteria, and on and on to larger and bigger organisms, to rice, which I study, to the mouse, to corn. To this day, there are thousands of genomes that have been sequenced from different species uh, around the world. So the study of genomics, or the study of our genome, has become now a central feature of biology, and of, I would say, of us as, um, as a species. We now study genomes routinely in order to try to understand the makeup of organisms. And here in NYU Abu Dhabi, we're no stranger to that. We established a Center for Genomics and Systems Biology um, five and a half years ago now, where uh, in Abu Dhabi, we try to understand the working, inner workings of the genomes of various organisms. And it's a sister center to one that is in NYU in New York City, which I was also the director briefly for a few years. So within these laboratories, we are trying to unravel um, the code of organisms um, that make them the distinct organisms they are. For me, as somebody who tries to understand evolutionary history, one thing always is, it's a message that I always impress on people. One of the things that's also good about our DNA or our genome is the history of our species is imprinted in our genome. In our genome is information that tells us about the history and evolution of our species, or any species for that matter. And the task we're faced with, me as an evolutionary genomicist, is to try to read this message, to try to use the message imprinted in our DNA to understand how different species have evolved. So my laboratory is focused primarily on understanding diversity of species. Why is it that different species are different from each other? And what are the genes that make different species different from one another? How is the amazing biodiversity in our planet um, enabled in part by changes in the genes that we find in the genomes of this organism? That is a large question that my group is interested in. And we've been working on this problem now for about 20 plus years uh, in my laboratory. But there is one kind of area of interest in my laboratory, one place that we go to to try to understand how species evolve. And it's an area that you might not think of. When you think of people studying evolution of organisms, you think of scientists going to the Galapagos Island or going to the Amazon um, or different parts of the world where they try to study species in their natural habitat. We go to the marketplace because in the marketplace are actually products of evolution. All the things that we eat um, are products of an evolutionary process. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what I mean by that. The evolution of crop species is actually a distinct evolutionary process. And the process is called domestication. What happens in domestication is that we have co-evolved with different species so that certain species are now dependent on us for their survival. And we've made them dependent on us for their survival and dispersal because we need those species for our own survival. Okay? And this came about because of a change in human 
ecology starting about 12,000 years ago. About prior to 12,000 years ago, we as a species, when we wanted food, we went and hunted for our food or we gathered wild seeds, wild nuts, wild fruits, and used that to nourish ourselves. That's what we did as a species. Starting about 12,000 years ago, something changed. We decided instead of being dependent on wild plants, for example, we developed this thing called gardens and farms where we took wild plants and started planting them. And that process by which we individuals started to plant these new, these wild species changed the evolution of those species so that after thousands of years of us tending to these species in our gardens and, and in agricultural farms, they have now evolved to become completely new species that are now dependent on us as humans for their survival. So we, as homo sapiens, changed from being gatherers of plants to being farmers. And this was a seminal point in the history of humans. Around the world, there are about 24 regions where different types of crop species have evolved. There, there might be more or less than that number. This was something that we've gathered in a paper we published on, on the anniversary of Darwin's birthday, actually, um, which we published in Nature. We documented 24 regions around the world where domestication took place of different crop species. The oldest is in this region, in, a re in, the, in what's called the Fertile Crescent, in a region that goes from modern-day Iraq into southern Turkey into the Levant. Um, this region has the oldest archaeological records for the origin of agriculture. In our oldest domesticated plant species and animal species, with the exception of the dog, actually, come from this region. So wheat, barley, flax, peas, lentils, goats, sheep, and cattle. Those are the ones that were domesticated in this region starting about 12,000 years ago. But we know that this also occurred in other parts of the world fairly independently from each other. So for example, in, um, um, in China, they also independently domesticated several species, including millets and later on rice. And they did it independently from the Fertile Crescent. In the, uh, the Americas, um, they also did agriculture independently from the Fertile Crescent and from China. So there they evolved potatoes, they evolved squashes, beans, maize. In North America, they evolved sunflowers. And it's still puzzling to anthropologists, which we are not quite sure why, this occurred around the world independently from each other. And we know that because in the Americas, for example, there was no contact between the Americas and the old world when domestications started to take place around the world. Um, we do know that it occurred after the last glacial cycle, um, when regions of the world began to be opened up for agriculture. But we don't know why humans started in different societies to, to adopt agriculture rather than to remain as hunters and gatherers. But domestication was very important because when domestication occurred, it also gave rise to sedentary societies. Instead of being nomadic hunters and gatherers, people started to then settle into areas where they could farm, where they could tend to their farm. And by settling, they started to organize themselves into villages and into cities. It is no um, surprise that the first cities were the Fertile Crescent where agriculture originated. Because the, use of the, 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 the origin of agriculture is intimately tied with the origin of surplus food supplies 
um, which then created more organized cities. It led to um, religious hierarchies, political hierarchies, writing. All of these were traced to those early civilizations that started agriculture. And so this evolutionary process that I talked about in evolutionary terms also was an important social mechanism for the evolution of our species because it gave rise to these large um, city centers and to um, what we would consider civilization itself. But as an evolutionary biologist, one of the things that interests me about um, domestication is how important it is to study it in order to understand how species evolve. So Darwin himself was fascinated by domestication and domesticated species. Origin of Species, his seminal work in 1859 that described the mechanism of selection for, spe um, for species differences. The first chapter is on domestication or on variation domestication. And the first book he publishes after Origin of Species was on the variation of domesticated species of plants and animals under domestication. He was fascinated by domestication for two reasons. It allowed him to study how variation was important and also the process of selection, which he said was of paramount importance in how species evolved. He looked to the example of how breeders select crops and animals as an analogy for trying to understand how evolution occurs in the wild. So Darwin used domestication as a way to understand evolution. My laboratory is interested in the same thing. Let's use domestication and domesticated species as a way to understand evolution. So all these crop species I've mentioned, and including date palms, are really interesting because they, they're all actually very new species. They're very recent species. They've evolved only in the last 12,000 years. All of the species that you eat that have been farmed or have been grown in, you know, have been grown in, in ranches or farms, all of those domesticated species evolved only in the last 12,000 years. They're all new species. And with the exception of the dog, the dog's the only one that started evolving 30,000 years ago. Everything else evolved in the last 12,000 years. And for an evolutionary biologist, that's exciting, because this means that these are very new species that we can try to look at and see what is it telling us about how new species arrive and are formed. So going back now to date palms, that was the, the kind of trying to give you a background of both genomics and also why we're interested in domestication. And as I said, date palms is just the system that we try to use to study um, this interesting process. Now, where do you find date palms? Date palms actually have a fairly wide range of, um, as a species. They grow everywhere from the eastern part of the, um, of the Indian subcontinent all the way into North Africa and into parts of sub-Saharan Africa. It is a species that grows into a fairly wide range uh, in the old world. Um, the origin of date palms is somewhat of a mystery. We actually don't know what, what the wild ancestor of the date palm is. It hasn't been found. I'll show you later evidence that we may have found it, but not we, but scientists have found it. Um, but right now, it's still a little bit of a mystery. We do know that the leading hypothesis for where it originated is right in this region, here in, um, the, uh, in, in, in the Fertile Crescent and in the Gulf region. 
The oldest evidence of date palms in the archaeological record is also actually Dalma Island in the United Arab Emirates, where archaeological digs in the last few years um, have uncovered several date stones. Um, these are the two ones that are important on the right. One was dated 6,600 years ago. The other was dated 7,100 years ago. Um, this is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, evidence for date stones associated with, uh, with, with humans uh, in the archaeobotanical record. Um, the history of date palms, actually going from wild to domesticated, is a long history. As I said, Dalma Island, the UAE, has the oldest record of, of date palm. We actually don't know if it's a cultivated date palm or it was something that was on the process of being um, domesticated. Um, and then in Mesopotamia and into Jordan in, in that area, starting about 6,000 years ago, 5,800 years ago, there are archaeological sites where you clearly see date palms being used by societies. And really, by about 5,000 years ago, there's actually written documentation of date palms, um, in, 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 especially in Mesopotamia, uh, and then later on into Egypt and other, and, and other places. Uh, and by, by, you know, by the Persian Empire in 2,500, you can really see writings uh, about date palms um, fairly routinely in the historical record. But even though that's where the evidence is, that doesn't stop people from describing other possibilities of where date palms come from, since we don't know where the wild ancestor is. So pretty much everywhere where date palms grow, people, somebody has suggested that that's where it came from. So whether it's in the, um, the, the Indian subcontinent, all the way to northwestern Africa, there are different scientists during different time periods who've suggested these places as where you can find date palms, uh, the, the, or, the origin of date palms. Um, but as I said, these are, you know, the, the, the fascination with date palms comes from its importance in, in the culture. So whether it's in, in the Quran, um, whether it's in Mesopotamia, this is a cylindrical seal 4,250 years ago, you can clearly see the date palm right at the center, all the way to the civilizations of the Minoan and Greek, oh, uh, I'm sorry, this is first in Egypt, starting about 3,000 years ago, this is a, a, a tomb of um, a, a minor uh, uh, a pharaoh, and you can see um, scenes of agriculture and also date palms uh, at the bottom. Um, and here in um, Greece, in, in, in the Minoan and later on Mycenaean civilizations, uh, in their amphoras, you see date palms, or at least palms, as prominent features. So date palms as a species was not only important, uh, and we don't know where it originated, but certainly captured the imagination of many of the major civilizations in the old world. Uh, and as I said, there's very few other crop species that have captured the imagination in so profound a way and have shaped um, culture in such a way. So here at NYU, we started five years ago a project which we called the 100 Dates Project. 100 Dates, a uh, uh, exclamation point. Uh, and what we wanted to do was we really wanted to analyze a genome of 100 date varieties to try to understand about their variation and how they evolved. Fortunately, by the way, we don't, uh, we don't use it as much because if you Google 100 dates, you come up with something completely different, um, which is interesting, but let's, let's not do that. So we never managed to um, keep that. But it's still officially what we call the project. And what we're doing is we're relying on the fact that, as many of you know, there's a large amount of diversity in dates. If you were ignorant like me prior to coming to the Middle East, you know, 
eight, nine years ago, um, to me, dates were medjool or deglet nur, right? Those were the only dates you got when you were going to the supermarket in the United States. Um, to you, that was what a date was. And of course, when you come here, you realize amazing diversity there are in varieties. There are about 3,000 named varieties of dates um, that, are, that, that have been cultivated, or at least are, are, are thought to be named. Um, and you can see here, this is a poster here from the, uh, from the UAE, which shows you all of the variation of, of fruit from different date varieties. On the right is actually from our own collection here. We've been collecting varieties and putting them on storage, and that's just from our collection here at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, the genome of the, uh, the, of the date palm has been sequenced. That has been completely read, actually twice. One, it was sequenced at Cornell, Qatar, I believe in 2013, and then later on in a joint project between Saudi Arabia and China. They sequenced the date palm genome. On the left, actually, that's, the, that, that's just a colored representation of the date palm genome. On the right is the oil palm genome. Um, the oil palm is an important uh, industrial crop uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, they're not similar to each other. They're 30 million years apart in evolution, um, but they still have a lot of similarity to each other. But, the day, but what's important is we kind of know the complete set of genes in the date palm and the whole genome. We've read about six to 700 million bases. Um, and and our work is still continuing to try to improve this. Um, it, it, while it's been sequenced, the quality of the sequence is, um, shall we say, not, not at the highest level um, that we in the community would want. So there's still continuing efforts to improve that um, sequence. So when we look at this genome, what we in my lab are interested in are mutations that make different date palm varieties different from each other. And this is just a cartoon to show it. Everybody, all date palms are different from each other in what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs for short. These are natural mutations that occur. And these mutations, some of them, are what make each individual different from each other. And they usually accumulate during the evolution of a species. So for example, we in this room, one of the reasons we look different from each other is we have different single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, that make each of us different from each other. So in my lab, what we try to do is we try to look for these SNPs, catalog them, and analyze them for the message they're telling us about how a species has evolved. Um, and we do that by sequencing the entire genome of these organisms, OK? And we use um, genome sequencing. This is a, a machine we've got here. It's an Illumina HiSeq 2500 machine. It's a genome sequencer. Remember I told you the human genome was sequenced for 10 years for $3 billion? This will sequence a human genome for about um, $25,000 in under 10 days, OK? Um, it's, a, it's, it's a remarkable machine. It's a real big workhorse in, in the genome center here. And we have several other machines that can sequence the genomes to different levels of depth. And on the right is just an example of um, a data for a single gene, where you can see that you can see these little letters there that are showing you those mutations that make those different individuals, which are those different uh, rows, different from each other. That's the information we want to get. We want to get why some individuals have a different message in their gene from some other individuals. What are the single nucleotide polymorphisms that differentiate it? 
And what we do is we combine the data we get from these sequencing machines, um, where we look at these polymorphisms, and combine them with mathematical models that have been developed to try to understand how evolution proceeds. So the nice thing about evolutionary genetics, which is the field that I'm, in, I'm involved in, is that there's a really good mathematical framework. The advance of this field comes about from these machines that can generate vast amounts of data and computational methods with high-performance computing that can analyze those vast amounts of data. If you put them together, you can start to read genomes in, 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 in many different ways. So we started this project, and, and we collected varieties from around the region, um, from Pakistan and India all the way to North Africa. This was actually more challenging than we thought. Uh, we actually thought it would be easy to collect these varieties. It turned out that this was much harder. One of the things that's different about date palms from other crop species is that there is no central international repository of date palm varieties. So in rice, there's one. There's actually two repositories. But the main one is in the Philippines, in the International Rice Research Institute, which has a seed for 110,000 varieties. For maize, there's CIMIT in Mexico. For potato, there's CIP in, uh, in, in Peru. But there's none for date palms. Each country has their own collection, and sometimes the collection is not really well organized. And so for my team, we actually had to go almost country by country trying to collect varieties. And we've had to establish relationships with our colleagues from different countries in an effort to get samples. And it was actually a rewarding experience. So here from the UAE, we were able immediately to um, collaborate with UAE University to get our samples. Um, we managed to collaborate with a faculty, uh, a professor from the University of Baghdad um, who gave us some samples. And we continue to collaborate with uh, the University of Baghdad on a project. In the start of the Syrian civil war, we actually got samples. It was shipped to us FedEx by a collaborator who, who sent us DNA from Damascus. And I, I was surprised that FedEx was still shipping from Damascus when this started. It's kind of a little bit heartbreaking. But we were able to try to collect as many as we can. We never got to, initially in the set, 100. We got about 62. And we decided, you know what? We've got enough. Let's at least get the information from these 62 varieties and publish them. So we had 62 varieties. And we were able to document 12 million single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, between varieties of date palms. That's actually a large number. Um, just uh, for, for comparison, for example, for Asian rice, for a, simple, for, a, uh, for, a, for, a, for a similar set, um, we would probably get about 4 million um, single nucleotide polymorphisms. 12 million is a lot. There are 19 single nucleotide polymorphisms per thousand letters in the genome. And the cultivars, the varieties, um, show a lot of variation within them. This is a very variable species. This is a very diverse species. And this just shows you a diagram. These are the different varieties and how they're related to each other based on their whole genome. And we're going to see a little bit more about this here. But at the bottom here, if you look at the, uh, the circle, I'm just going to go here. From here, these are the Middle East varieties. From here to the right, these are the North African varieties. And in the middle are the Egyptian and Sudanese varieties. Um, when we did more of an analysis, it's clear that the Middle East varieties and the North African varieties are genetically different from each other. I mean, not just on a small individual level, but large-scale differences. 
So this is an analysis where we take each individual and we look at their genome and say, what population do you belong to? And these are the Middle East varieties. And they say, we belong to one population. It's called the Middle East population. Over there, those varieties, another color, they're the ones from North Africa. They're genetically different from the Middle East. And in between, where you have varieties that look like they're part of them comes from North Africa, part of them comes from the Middle East, these are the ones from Egypt. They look like they're, they're hybrids between what's going on between North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and this was something that had actually been seen already, but it was nice to see it in a whole genome level. So now that we have this data, can we say something about date palms and what's creating this variation? And where do date palms come from? I hate to say it, but we still don't know where date palms come from, even this data. So we're continuing the research uh, on this. Um, but one of the things we decided to do to try to understand a little better is, how about sequencing the genomes of species in the region that are related to date palms, but they're, they're wild, they're not date palms. So in this map, actually, you have the difference. So you have Phoenix dactylifera, which is the date palm shown there on dark, and then other species that are found around it. So you have Phoenix theophrasti in Crete, Sylvestris in India, Reclinata in Africa, um, you know, and, and other species that are found in the old world, Atlantica in uh, the Cape Verde Islands, Canariensis in the Canary Islands. Let's sequence those individuals. How are they related to date palms? So we just did that. This is not yet published. Um, we're still analyzing the data, but this is what it looks like. You see date palms on the top, the Middle East, Egypt, Africa. Interestingly, a species that's found in the Cape Verde Islands, Phoenix Atlantica, it looks like it's just a North African date that probably escaped. Uh, but it looks like it's a North African date. And here you can tell that the closest species to date palms is Phoenix sylvestris. Phoenix sylvestris is that species that you find in India, okay? Which makes sense if you think that date palms originate in the Middle East. It's adjacent to India. Maybe um, there was a wild species that came from India that was established in the Middle East, and that's what gave rise to date palms um, starting about 7,000 years ago. But Phoenix sylvestris seems to be the closest species. It's found in the Indian subcontinent. But we still don't have wild date palms, the ancestor, um, because Phoenix sylvestris is a separate species that is what we call a sister species to date palms, but it's still separate. Well, an interesting article came about, a paper came about about three months ago, or July, three, four months ago, five months ago now, in the journal Current Biology. That took, everyone, that took all of us by surprise who were studying this, because we didn't know this was being done. There was a paper that suggested that the wild date palms in Oman may give us a clue to the origin of dates. This is the paper, it was in Current Biology. The discovery of wild date palms in Oman reveals a complex domestication history, okay? Um, and what they found is that these wild date palms from Oman, you can see this in this tree here, which looks at relationships. Putative wild over there, it's grouping with the date palms from the Middle East. But look at its position. It's actually a little bit separate from the Middle East date palms. Here's kind of a cartoon for what it looks like. Here's the African dates, here's the Middle East dates, and here are the wild dates. The wild dates are related to the Middle East dates, but they're separate, okay? 
And that suggests that they're an old, wild relic. Could they be the wild ancestor? Or could they just be a very old branch of the date palm family? Um, it's something that we still need um, to try to figure out. The beauty is that the scientist who led the study, Muriel Gross-Baltasard, I convinced her to come to NYU Abu Dhabi, and she's going to be joining the Genome Center in January to try to continue to try to study this question here. Um, so that's what we've learned about a little bit about the origin of date palms and the differences between North African and Middle East dates. At least they're genetically different. We now know that. And we ask, what are the genes that makes these two different from each other? And we can start to use this information to try to, and the genome information, to look for specific genes um, that are variable within the species. Oh, before I go that, I'll, I'll tell you one mystery about the North African dates, because the North African dates are a little bit of an enigma. Remember that the Middle East and North African dates are genetically separate. Because they're genetically separate, um, it's been suggested that maybe dates evolved twice, once in the Middle East and one in North Africa. It's a perfectly reasonable idea, except the archaeological record doesn't suggest that. Um, these are just like a summary of archaeology throughout the region for date palms. 7,000 to 6,000 years in the Gulf region. In about the Levant, it's about 5,800 years ago. It doesn't cross the Red Sea into Egypt until 3,500 years ago. That's when you still start to see date palms. It doesn't appear in North Africa, first in Libya, until about 3,000 years ago. It comes to North Africa very late. And you can kind of see the pattern, right? It's oldest in the Middle East, and then it, start, it's, it looks like it's moving west. So about 3,000 years ago, it's now in North Africa. Um, if that were true, actually, as a geneticist, that has a prediction as a scientist. It, we can make a prediction. If the theory is that date palms originated in the Middle East and then kind of moved to North Africa, the prediction is the Middle East date palms are going to be more variable than the North African date palms. What we should see is something like this. Where diversity is highest in the east, it should decrease as you go west. That's not what our data showed. What our data showed is that this is a measure of diversity, how many mutations there are in the genome. It's about 0 0.008 in the Middle East. It's higher in Africa. Even though it came late in Africa, and by all other indications, it must have come from the Middle East. It actually has higher diversity in, in North Africa. And this is something we're still trying to figure out. So what we're doing now is we're looking again at all of these wild species to try to see if we can tease apart several questions. Where did dates originate from? And also, where did the North African dates come from? Um, they're clearly related to the Middle East dates, but they're somewhat genetically different. OK, so now let's come back to the question of what specific genes are involved that make these different dates different from each other. I'll give you two examples that we think we were able to get from our data. This one has to do with the softness of dates. Here in the Middle East, when you buy dates, it's usually the soft ones, um, like kalas is a soft date. Okay? Um, but there are three classes of dates, soft, semi-soft, and dry dates. The dry dates are called the bread dates. Um, and there's a difference in frequency of those types between North Africa and the Middle East. 
in the Middle East, um, there's a preponderance of soft dates. Most of the dates are soft. While in North Africa, there's a lot more dry dates that you can find, at least in the repertoire of dates. And this difference is actually significant between the two. Can we find the gene responsible for the differences between the dry dates that are predominant in North Africa and the soft dates in the Middle East? Well, we did an analysis. You don't need to go into details. What we did is we compared the mutations in the North African versus the Middle East dates. And we were looking for genes where there was a difference in the number of mutations that could signal that there was selection for a particular gene. And we found one. This is one of them that we found um, where in North Africa, you have almost no variation, and you have some variation in the Middle East. And it hits a gene called pectin lyase. What is this gene? The pectin lyase gene is a gene that is involved in digesting the cell wall of cells, which are kind of woody. Um, and I don't know if you can see that, but there was this other study on tomatoes that when they take the pectin lyase gene, and they engineered tomatoes to express that gene, the tomato starts to get very soft, just like you would expect. And so what we're thinking, although we haven't proven it, is that this pectin lyase gene is important for the softness of dates as well. You're looking at the analogy with the tomato. And this is something that can be pursued. There's another one that we think we're on firmer ground. That's the color of dates. If you've gotten um, uh, 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 dates before they've completely ripened and dried out, you know that they are different colors. There are some dates that are yellow and some that are red. Um, and again, there's a difference between North Africa and the Middle East. In the Middle East, there's um, more of a mixture of red and yellow dates, while in North Africa, a lot of them are yellow dates. There's some red, but most of them are yellow dates. And what's the gene responsible for the color? Um, you can see that there are red and yellow dates. And remember that oil palm example that I showed you earlier. Oil palm, which is 30 million years separate from date palm. Their fruits also have a yellow and darker colored, it's called negrescence, phenotype. Okay? So that in oil palm, you also see a color change in the fruit. And in the oil palm case, they figure out what the gene was. Um, it's a gene called the virescence gene. What it is, it's a gene um, that makes a protein that turns on other genes to make the color, or to make an enzyme that makes the color, the anthocyanin color that makes the fruit. But what they find in oil palm are those individuals that have what's called the virescence phenotype, the one that's yellowish. They've got mutations or SNPs that mutate the protein so that it's shorter. And when it's shorter, we think it doesn't function as well. Okay? And that's creating the yellow color in oil palm. So the question is, could this gene be also important in date palms? Remember, they're both palms. Now, they're separated by 30 million years of evolution. Could it be that even though they're very far apart, the same gene is responsible for color? So um, Khaled Hazuri, who's in the audience today, who was the, the project manager for this project, decided to get the, uh, the date palm, uh, the, the, the genes in date palm that were related to the oil palm gene that gave the color polymorphism. And when he sequenced it, lo and behold, he found a mutation in the gene 
um, that also causes the gene to be shorter, just like in the oil palm case. The same gene in oil palm and date palms, even though they're separated by 30 million years of evolution, are responsible for the color change in um, the date palm. And then when you think about it, it was, when we thought about it, we realized it's not surprising because other examples of fruits that have this color polymorphism, it's actually the same gene over and over again. So whether it's red grapes or yellow grapes, whether it's red or yellow or green apples, red or yellow tomatoes, or you know that, um, you know what this is? The cow. Chocolate, I didn't know the fruits could be red or yellow, and it's the same gene. So it seems that in evolution, this gene over and over again is what's used by evolution to create color changes in fruits. Uh, and so this is something that we're currently also pursuing, um, looking at this more, more closely in color. The other thing, the last thing I'd like to say about this in our look at the genome is how that mutation for the color gene came about. It came about because there's a large DNA segment that's inserted in the gene. It's called a copia transposon. It's what we know colloquially as a jumping gene. It is a piece of DNA that can move around the genome and jump into other portions of the genome and mutate those genes. And this is interesting because Barbara McClintock in 1983 won the Nobel Prize for finding jumping genes. She found them in corn first. But now we know that a lot of organisms have them. Um, and Barbara is my actual academic grandmother. Um, so I did work in transposable elements a long time ago. So it was nice to be able to find in date palm a jumping gene, a transposable element. And we know that it must be active because it has gone into the, um, the, this virescence gene fairly recently. It must have jumped. We don't know how recent, but it must have jumped Within, within some time in the evolutionary past. Um, we've looked at this gene and we've started to learn more about it. We've decided to call it Bin Majid. Uh, it's the retrotransposon gene. For those of you who don't know, Bin Majid, Ahmad Bin Majid, is a 15th century Arab navigator from the UAE. Um, and actually, I wanted to name it Sinbad, but somebody had already taken the name. It's completely a waste because it taken the name and it's the name of a transposon or a jumping gene in some parasite that they found. It's like, that's not a way to use it. So I had to find another example that was culturally significant. So I settled Bin Majid. And that gets me back to the Louvre. Because as I'm walking in the Louvre, what do I find? It's a copy of the nautical treatise of Bin Majid from 1576. It was right there. You know, just shows you how your work can intertwine with other, uh, with other things. So that's what we've learned with looking at the genome sequences of these varieties of dates and what we've learned about their biology. I'd like to end by seeing what else we can do and what we are going to be doing in the future here at NYU Abu Dhabi. One is we're going to continue to try to unlock the mysteries of date palm evolution. We want to find the origin of date palms. And we're going to try to sequence as many both cultivated dates and wild dates to try to see if we can track where it came from. Because it's kind of a mystery we want to be able to solve. But the other thing that's more useful is we want to take the variation or the diversity in date palms and learn more 
about the genes that make this diversity. And there are a lot of traits that we can look at. We can look at flowering time. Uh, we've been collecting data, for example, in sugar levels. This is sugar level data where you can see each of these dots is an individual variety. And most varieties have actually low sucrose. They're high in glucose and fructose, but low in sucrose, except some varieties, which are higher in sucrose. They're the sucary varieties. Some of them are the sucary varieties. So we know that different date varieties are different in what sugars they have. Um, we, and we think that we can take that data on different sugars, on different acids, and different volatiles, different flowering time, different sizes. Anything that we can measure that has a genetic basis, we can take that data, put it together with the genomic data that we're going to gather, and be able to map genes for these traits. What are the genes that make a date rich in sucrose rather than rich in fructose? What would make this plant flower later rather than earlier? What would make this, this one a softer date or a, a drier date? What would make um, this one a larger date or a smaller date? If there are genes behind that, we think we can map it. And this is something that we're interested in doing for the next few years. So that really gives you an overview of some of the research that we've been doing at NYU Abu Dhabi and Date Palms. And I think we're going to continue. It's something that we're committed to and we're really excited to do. I think one of the things that we're trying to do, and this is in collaboration now with the Khalifa Center of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology at UAE University, we've decided that our Date Palm Genome Project is now kind of a, 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 a collaborative effort between our two institutions where we hope to study more about the genomics and evolution of dates in the future. Um, and and it's it really, I think it's time that the that UAE has its own date palm genome project. And this is really the start of the uh, a date palm genome project, which I hope will continue over the next um, few years. So I'd like to end by thanking the people who really did most of the work. This is actually my group both in New York and in Abu Dhabi. I brought my New York group here in Abu Dhabi last year, so we were able to take all of them together. It's a small group, but a very high-powered group. Um, the, the amount of intellectual firepower in my group, I'm always awed at how, you know, how, how brilliant they are. Um, the work that I'd, I'd like to point out that the work on date palms was led by Khaled Hazuri, um, who is here in the audience today. He's now uh, in the, uh, uh, an assistant professor at the Khalifa Center for Genetic Engineering Biotechnology, but continues to be a visiting scholar here at NYU Abu Dhabi so that it strengthens the collaboration. Uh, and Jonathan Flowers, who is a postdoc uh, both in New York and Abu Dhabi, uh, doing much of the work uh, on date palms as well. Uh, the other one I'd like to mention is um, Sylvie Ferrand uh, over there. Um, she's a technician who works on the date palm project. Uh, and I have other people like undergraduates who are involved in the project or not in this, in, in this photograph and have been working on this project for the last few years. So I'd like to thank you for your attention. I hope you learned something about date palms and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have about date palms that I can answer or the evolution of crops or crops in general. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.